Hello, today we are joined here by uh, Professor Raymond Goyce, who is Professor Emeritus in the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Professor Goyce has broad interest in the history of European philosophy and contemporary political philosophy, and his forthcoming book, Not Thinking Like a Liberal, will be published at the end of this May by Harvard University Press. So, Professor Goyce, um, your latest book, Not Thinking Like a Liberal, is very different from your previous works, which you know really consisted mostly of collections of essays, but various uh, themes and topics in political philosophy. It is by far the most sort of explicitly autobiographical, and it represents an attempt to self-contextualize your own political thought. So why did you decide to write this book? Uh, I had a number of motivations. Um, the first was um, that I've always found that Anglo-American political philosophy um, is um, I'm sorry to have to say it, rather narrow-minded and lacking in imagination and lacking in flexibility, particularly, however, um, lacking in imagination of alternatives. And I think this is uh, one of the reasons why it has so much difficulty dealing with questions of real political change. Uh, I think you can only really understand political change if you don't simply focus on the world as we have it now and tiny, tiny variations or reforms of that basic structure. But if you train yourself to think more generally about alternative ways of doing things. So I've always been very surprised that political theorists had uh, often such a narrow uh, focus on this world. And in particular, um, I had a, the experience particularly at Princeton, of people simply, I mean, political theorists who simply couldn't understand why um, I would at all be interested in anthropological data, data about other kinds of societies. They just couldn't, couldn't see what the point of that could possibly be. Um, and also, there's another dimension that, so you can think of how you might get flexibility. You can get flexibility and imagination in a number of ways. You can do it horizontally, by thinking about other kinds of societies. I think of Levi-Strauss as a kind of model of that, Triste Tropique, which is a remarkable book. One of the best books in the 20th century talks about his attempt to get outside the kinds of societies he knows and looks at other, look at other kinds of societies. Now to be sure, he goes and lives in South America, as you know, with a series of Indian tribes. Now, as you know, he eventually comes to the conclusion that the more he gets in contact with uh, indigenous peoples who have not been shaped by Western society, the less he's able to understand them at all. So there is a kind of dialectic there of attempting to expand your uh, understanding by going outside what you know and actually finding that the further outside you get, the less you understand. There is a dialectic there, but that is a kind of horizontal dimension you can try to mobilize to flexibilize yourself. And the other way is historically, you can think about the deep, deep past of our, our own past, and you can try to abstract from all the ways in which that past has been packaged for us and see it as really different uh, in some way. I, I think so that if, if, if um, Levi-Strauss is a kind of horizontal expansion, 
The other is a kind of vertical expansion. And I think of Nietzsche as someone who paradigmatically tries to do that, go back to the pre-classical Greeks and see what's actually going on there and, um, and try to use that to expand the realm of possibilities. So I thought that um, many, and there are other ways of trying to expand your imagination too. You can try to take extreme forms of experience or, but, um, I thought that, uh, so I thought that it was uh, sad that political theorists had such a narrow uh, understanding of what um, what were the possibilities. And I thought that in my own case, actually, I had grown up in the United States, but I'd grown up in a kind of slightly deviant subculture, which had the effect that my education did not predispose me to think of liberalism as the natural framework for thinking about societies. And I thought that might be an interesting story to tell. And that brings me to the second motivation, which is that um, I, I thought that political philosophy was both very narrow-minded and, and intended to focus too much on formal argumentation, structural abstract uh, argumentation. And I understand that and of course, arguments are important. But I also had the experience that I also think that people don't actually change their political views so much by taking account of formal arguments, um, just in the way in which people don't change their religion. You, you don't, no one becomes a Christian by being convinced by the arguments for Christianity. The arguments are there, but you, you, you make this sort of decision for much, much broader and deeper and other kinds of reasons. And, and so I thought that telling my own story, the story about how I grew up in this slightly deviant bubble of, uh, of a world with a non-liberal uh, uh, education, um, but telling that story as an, as an autobiographical story, that is not as a formal argument, but as an autobiographical story with psychological elements and historical elements and other things would give the, the story a kind of richness and density that um, very often the abstract arguments lack. So that was a second motivation. Um, and the third motivation was that um, in actual politics, uh, I found it very disappointing that um, we have come to a situation in which false dichotomies play such an important role in structuring our political thought. Uh, I think here archetypically, given my age, of Tony Blair, who was a master of the false dichotomy. You know, uh, you remember during the uh, discussion of the invasion of Iraq, he was constantly saying, either you support my invasion of Iraq, or you were endorsing everything Saddam Hussein ever did. That's the alternative, that's the dichotomy. Choose between those two. And of course, what one wanted to say was, um, no, thank you. I don't particularly want to choose between those two things. That's a false dichotomy. I had the same experience in recently, I wrote a paper on Habermas in which I criticized the ideal speech situation. And people said to me, well, if you criticize the ideal speech situation, you must be endorsing Putin because the because either there is 
ideal discourse with a notion directed to a notion of truth, or there is nothing but uh, lies and manipulation and power and power. And, and therefore, do you accept Habermas or do you accept Putin? And, and there, there too, I wanted to say, um, you know, Habermas has this highly Baroque particular conception of truth, um, seems to me implausible. You can reject that without in any sense being committed to Putin as the alternative. And so I thought I would tell this story, this story, this autobiographical story also in a way as an attempt to um, undercut another kind of false dichotomy, which seemed to me uh, to have a certain kind of traction in our world, namely uh, you were either a liberal or you were an authoritarian. And so there was liberalism and there was authoritarianism and choose between the two of them. Um, and what I wanted to say in the book was this is an autobiographical account. It's not a, the book is not an argument. It's a narrative. It's a kind of ethnographic story about my upbringing and my training and my education and my views, which is told under the uh, perspective of trying to see to what extent that path escaped from the uh, false dichotomy of liberal or authoritarian. So they were the three motivations that uh, that that moved me to 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 write to write the book. That's really interesting. Um, going back to your first motivation, have you learned anything sort of new? Um, by the process of writing this book, and what is what could you say that there's something distinctive about trying to contextualize your own thought? Like, is there something that allows you to draw certain lessons? Or, uh, I, I um, I wouldn't actually say uh. There are different ways of writing books. Um, there are books that take a long time to write and one labors over and one works things out. Uh, the first book I wrote in 1981, Idea of a Critical Theory, was that kind of torturous book. It just took forever for me to write out. Just, and if you write a book like that, especially if you write a book like that as a young person, it is a journey of discovery. And you find all sorts of things by working the stuff out. But there's another kind of book. There's a kind of book that you just write off. Um, I, I wrote this book, um, Not Thinking Like a Liberal, in about six weeks. I just sat down and wrote it out. Um, and I'm 75. And so I think it's a different kind of book. It isn't a book in which I discovered anything. It's uh, actually uh, the, the, the external motivation was uh, uh, I have a friend who's a, who works for a German publisher, and she suggested to me a couple of years ago that I write a, um, a philosophical autobiography. And I thought about that and I thought about that and I thought, no, I don't really want to do that. Uh, she wanted me to write it in German, you know, because if I wrote it in German, I'd have to explain in great detail all of these things about American social institutions. And what's the point of that? It's really boring. So I, I discarded that idea. But then, then I finished this other book that I wrote about work and I was at loose ends and I just sat down and wrote this. So no, it wasn't really a voyage of discovery. It was just it was just 
formulating things that I've thought about for a long time and seemed pretty obvious to me. And I just thought I would write down. So you, in your book, you focus mainly on the years leading up to your doctorate in um, 1971. So I'm interested in what happens afterwards. Could you describe your time teaching in Germany and in the US following your doctorate? Sure. Um, well, for me, um, you have to understand that uh, 1971 is, for me, uh, a a landmark by which I um, orient myself about my own life. Um, and I, I would say that up to 1971, when I got my PhD, um, I was open, I was I was open to influences, I was learning things from people all the time, I was changing my views. Um, and then by 1971, when I finished um, the PhD, Really, since then, um, there haven't been any absolutely formative experiences that have changed me. Um, you know, obviously, anyone who lives develops in various ways. But but before 71, I was really open to things. I was moving. My, my, my mind was moving. I was considering different alternatives. After that, I was in in uh, I had I had the form I had as it were the form the intellectual formation and the outlook that I thought I was going to have for the rest of my life and I have had for the rest of my life. So in a way I can answer that question, but it won't be very it won't be as interesting as the question before 71 because before 71 I was actually learning things. After 71 it was it wasn't the case. So I went to Germany in 1971. I got a job teaching in Heidelberg and um you have to understand that um, I went there. Uh, I went there with this particular formation I had had, um, and the, one of the people who was particularly important there was uh, uh, Sidney Morgenbesser, my great teacher, who was the John Dewey Professor of Philosophy, who was very, very. Um, knowledgeable about and keen on pragmatism, particularly Dewey's pragmatism. So and his version of Dewey's pragmatism was Dewey's pragmatism as continuous with Marxism. So just as the early Marx talks about praxis as the central phenomenon in human life, the, the, the human way of interacting with each other in society, that's the central thing in life. We're not raised cogitant, we're not we're not mental phenomena, disembodied spirits, we're social beings practically engaging with one another and with the world. Praxis is the central thing. And so Sidney thought um, pragmatism is exactly the same. It is not exactly the same thing, of course, but it's it's parallel. It's a turn away from the autonomy of the theoretical, um, uh, a turn away from the Platonist tradition and in the direction of practical, of thinking of thought as located always in its practical context, and that includes its political context. So that was my that that was the basic attitude I had, which I acquired from Sydney in, in the 60s. And associated with that, there was a certain view of the history of philosophy, which was very different from the traditional view of the history of philosophy, or I should say a certain view of in particular of particular relevance to me, 
a certain view of the history of 19th century philosophy. The standard way people tended to think about the history of 19th century philosophy was there was Kant. Kant was the great revolutionary, the, um, the initiator of everything. And the 19th century was basically just Kant's children. It, they were all footnotes to Kant. They just were developing Kant. They were developing one thing, they were developing another, but he was the great positive person who structured the discussion and they all went along with that. Um, and Dewey and then also Sidney reversed that story. And it was very important that I assimilated that reversal of the story in the 60s. Namely, Kant was the great vampire. He was the great horror figure there at the end of the 19th century, at the, sorry, at the end of the 18th century. And the whole 19th century had been influenced by him, but the way it, it had been influenced was negative because everybody who was progressive in the 19th century was trying desperately and radically to get away from Kant. So there were some Kantians and actually authoritarian regimes tended to become Kantians when Wilhelminian, when Bismarck unified Germany through blood and iron, there was a big revival of Kantianism because Kant, you know, Dewey said had a natural affinity with authoritarian regimes. So when Prussia rules Germany, it brings Kant as the great philosopher of duty. And of course, the same thing in the Second World War, Hitler thought that Kant was the big German philosopher. And so every time you get an authoritarian government, they, they rehabilitate Kant. So there were some of that, but if you looked at the progressive line of thought of the 19th century, they were all people trying to get away from it. Hegel, absolutely trying, to, not a, a minor Kantian, but a, a radical anti-Kantian, uh, Marx, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, and then Dewey himself, all of them getting away from Kant. And what they hated about Kant, I think, were, were a number of things. Or, or Dewey thought and Sidney thought, they, they, they hated a number of things about Kant. Um, first, they hated the whole transcendentalist program, the whole a priori structure, the whole um, theory about, um, about uh, there being a fixed ahistorical structure of, of invariant categories and there being conditions of the possibility of experience that were not empirical, not historical, were somehow out of history. And, and, and Kant's idea that you should have philosophy should be a kind of transcendental philosophy. And basically Dewey said, that's just a mystification of processes. And the people who reacted against that reacted in different ways. Hegel tried to make it more historical. Marx tried to make it more historical, more social. Kierkegaard tried to make it more existential. Um, you know, we don't, ha we have these structures, but but they're not given to us. They're chosen to some extent. Uh, they're decisions we make. Dewey himself had a different way of understanding. They're all trying to get away from that. So that's the first thing they hated. They hated the transcendentalism. Second, they hated the dualism because Kant is, of course, all based on dualities, the, the empirical, the transcendental, duty and inclination, the transcendental ego, the empirical ego, noumenon phenomenon. I mean, the whole system is a series of dichotomies. And there was some sense that all of these people thought that 
structuring thinking like that was both never going to get you any kind of understanding, and it was a form of alienation. It was a form of entrenching human alienation. So you, they all tried to overcome that. And the third, uh, the third thing was uh, basically a Kant's idea that there was an independent, autonomous, fully self-sufficient moral ought. There was a kind of morality which was just freestanding. It was a categorical imperative as a result of reason, and it was completely different from calculations of prudence, um, instrumental reason, any of those sorts of things. So there were those three things that, and Hegel and Marx and Kierkegaard, and all of them did reject that clearly. You know, Kierkegaard thought that religion was more important than than morality and Hegel clearly, I mean, there is no ethics in Hegel and Marx. So all of they rejected all those three things. Now, I, uh, I, in the 60s, the other thing that had happened to me, in addition to Sidney Morgenbesser and Columbia, was uh, I was in Freiburg as a student in 67, 68, and I began to read Adorno very uh, seriously while I was there, read a lot of Adorno. And um, and I saw Adorno and the Frankfurt School in that light. I saw Adorno as the as it were the next step in this progressive story that started from the rejection of Kant. Um, and the the Frankfurt School, the, the central thing I, saw, I thought I saw in the Frankfurt School was an attempt to see truth as some kind of historic you know, truth has a historical kernel. That's what they, one of their bolmo. Somehow it's difficult to say what that means and it's complicated, but but truth has a, a historical kernel, which of course is deeply, deeply anti-Kantian. And so I, as I said, I read that very carefully and repeatedly in, in the 67, 68. So when I came to Heidelberg in 71, um, I was told by people I should read this book by Habermas, which was Akentos uh, und Interesse, Knowledge and Human Interest, because this was the next, um, the next step in the Frankfurt School. Um, and I, um, I read it and I had exactly the opposite reaction to it. I, I had the reaction, not that this is the natural next step in the Frankfurt School, but that this is, um, this is a this is a throwback. This is a counter revolution. If the history, if 19th century history has been an attempt to get rid of the transcendentalism of Kant, this is an attempt to go back to something like a transcendental program. It, it, it's different from Kant, of course. It's based on more complicated things. It has a theory of language which Kant doesn't have. It's got pragmatics. It's got all this. It's got these bells and whistles. But it's basically going back to Kant. And therefore, I thought that the, the, the story one was told that there was uh, Horkheimer and Adorno and then there was Habermas and that, that was a natural progression was completely wrong. I thought there was a, a coupure. I thought there was a, an Einschnitt, a, a, um, a, an abyss. There, there was a break between Adorno and Habermas and that he didn't represent a natural uh, continuation. He represented another one of these back to Kant um, movements. And um, 
and so uh, while I was there, I began to write the book that became the first book I, I published, uh, The Idea of a, of a Critical Theory, um, the point of which was to basically say that. So, uh, so I was in Germany for a couple of years then, um, and then I came back to the United States and taught at Columbia and Princeton and um, University of Chicago. And um, I did uh, I did some um, teaching in Germany too. I was in Hamburg for a while. I was in um, I was in Berlin at the Wissenschaftskolleg for a year. Um, and then in '93, um, I emigrated from from the United States to Cambridge. And so during that period, from say the time I came back to the United States to 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 '93 when I was um, when I came here to Cambridge, um, I basically had jobs teaching standard stuff in history of philosophy, teaching actually a lot of Kant. That was that was the bread and butter. I mean, you have to remember, I was sort of hired as a continental philosopher, as they called it, and the, the bread and butter of that was teaching Kant. So I taught Kant all the time. I think I taught Kant every year I was at Princeton. and. I had the experience that every time I read his texts over the years, I found it all more implausible. I just found it increasingly absurd every time. Generally, if I if I uh, immerse myself in a text and read them again and again and again and read a lot of different texts and I was teaching a lot of different things. I was I wasn't just teaching the first critique. I was teaching teaching all, all sorts of things about Kant. I was teaching the the some sometimes I was teaching Kant's ethics, sometimes teaching the aesthetics, sometimes I was teaching all sorts of things, lots of stuff, and 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 it, virtually every year something. And every time I read any of it, I just thought this is just absurd. Why would anybody take any of this plausibly? So eventually I was really relieved when I came to Cambridge and I could more or less put that behind me because I uh, because I did it wasn't uh, because I came to Cambridge actually not in the philosophy faculty but in the social and political sciences faculty so I could do a different kind of teaching I could teach Max Weber and Durkheim and uh, and and Hobbes and things and um, and uh, put the Kant behind me. So, you know, during this, during that period, I, I, I did a lot of teaching Kant and I, um, and I, uh, and I got uh, increasingly disillusioned with it. Not that I'd been a particular fan of it to begin with, but I got even less of a fan of it. Oh, and the other thing that happened was I, the two other things that happened, I, um, I read, I began to read Foucault seriously. Um, uh, of course, not all of Foucault's works were available in that time because they're still coming out, but I, st about uh, 83, 84, I started reading uh, Foucault systematically and seriously. And I read that very uh, extensively and uh, with great, um, with great, um, I felt I learned a lot out of that. So that was a, another thing I did during that period. And the third thing that happened was um, I became uh, friends with the very uh, distinguished um, uh, political theorist and um, historian of uh, political thought, Quentin Skinner. Uh, he was at the 
Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton when I was at the university. And he invited me to join uh, the editorial board of this series that he ran called um, Cambridge History, Cambridge Texts in the History of Political Thought, which sometimes called the Blue Series because they're in a blue, they're in a blue, blue binding. And um, and uh, he said, he said, <laughs> oh well, we'll do, we'll do six or maybe we'll do ten <laughs> books. And you know, <laughs> of course, thirty thirty years later, when I staggered out at the end of my stint, um, panting and and, uh, and 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 exhausted. Uh, we'd done 120, 120 volumes, um, but but and I and I have to say a number of things. One is that that project was absolutely Quentin's baby. That was not mine. He he was the spiritus rector. He had the idea about it. He had the he had the knowledge. He had the basic skills. He was the one, and he did much, much more of the work than I did. I was happy to be associated with it, but he was the one who really was the the, the intellectual force behind that. Um, but although that was the case, we retained formally a kind of a collaborative approach to these things. So we all looked at all the volumes together. I mean, we, we, we didn't distribute the volumes. Both of us looked at all the volumes together. Now, that means I didn't read every page of these 120 books. Um, but uh, there was no book uh, in which I didn't read significant chunks uh, that I didn't read significant chunks of. Many I did read through, which I'd never read before. Uh, also, part of the series was that we were going to do new translations if possible. So we did the um, we did very careful analysis. We tried to do very careful analysis of the linguistic aspects of these things. There we had to, we had a bit of a failure of of, of, of collaboration because my Italian just wasn't up to doing the correct, you know, controlling the Italian translations. So, uh, so Quentin was completely re responsible for the Italian ones, but the others we both, we both looked at carefully. And most importantly, and what took the greatest time was, um, each volume had um, an introduction of 6,000 words by a very distinguished person who was an expert on that text. And Quentin and I both read all the introductions very carefully and commented on them. And in some cases, of course, they were wonderful authors and not much needed to be done and you could, you could just go with them immediately. But in some cases, they needed to be revised two or three times and so, I went through a lot of them, and so I think at the end of uh, at the end of that time, that is, um, if you think of um, that, the we had the first meeting of the series, I think, in '84. So between '84 and 2012, I guess I pr probably stopped. Um, between that time, I, I read basically enormously in the history of political thought, Western political thought. And primarily, uh, I read these 126,000 word introductions by experts on these things. And that gave me a sense that I had, um, I, I, would, I would never have done that by myself. I would never have been able to do it by myself. 
uh, but it gave me a sense it was a kind of education. I, I, I had a sense I, I, I had now some kind of um, overview, at least, of the history of Western political thought and how it worked and some of the main positions that were taken. So they were the things I did between 71 and 93, I guess. Um, I distanced myself more from Kant. I did the blue series. I read Foucault. Um, well, that's what I did, basically. I did a lot of teaching, of course. Great. So taking it all together, you know, reading Foucault, um, editing the Ideas and Context series, and as well as teaching in Cambridge. Excuse think... me, may, may I just interrupt? Yeah. Um, Ideas in Context is another series that ah. Quentin runs, which I was not involved in. Uh, I was only involved in one of uh, Quentin had a number of these. He was a real, uh, as you know, he's a real intellectual powerhouse. I mean, he's a major uh, cultural figure, and he was responsible for a lot. So he had this series called Ideas in Context, which were original monographs on the history of uh, political thought and and intellectual history. I wasn't involved with that. I was only involved with the Cambridge texts in the history of political thought. Yep, the blue books. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean. Yeah, I didn't mean to. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good spot. Um, yeah, so taking it all together, you know, reading Foucault, editing the blue book series, and as well as teaching, um, you know, students at Cambridge. How how do all these things well, fit together? Was, yeah, into this work? was before I taught to. to this is until 1993. This yep. is I, th I thought you were asking between 71 and 93. So this is the period before I came to Cambridge. I came to Cambridge in 93. Yeah. So you, you moved to the UK in 93 and then you subsequently also um, taught. Yes. Um, so taking it all together, how, how do you think this has informed your work? Um, Uh, I'm sorry to have to say that, uh, as as I as I've said, I think um, my work all comes from the period between 1963 and 1971. That's where I got all of the ideas that I had, um, with perhaps one exception. Um, pragmatism, Marxism. I did a lot of reading of Nietzsche, um, Adorno, and, 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 and that eventually all came out in my writing. The one thing that uh, was one book, actually my own, my, if you look, if I look at my own books and I ask myself, what's my favorite book? My favorite book is um, Public Goods, Private Goods, um, which um, is the one book that is sort of original and different, I think, from the others. And and that is a specific thing that changed. Um, I was invited by uh, John Dunn, uh, organized uh, some conferences. He organized a conference on that topic uh, and invited me to give a paper. And then I gave that paper and um, began to think about it. I, I had thought about that uh, before. I thought when I was at Princeton, I was asked to give something to the School of Architecture on the public and the private. I started working on that, but uh, that was a paper that was, <laughs> uh, the drafts of the paper were stolen from my hotel room in Belgrade. Um, so I lost that, that never came out. 
and then when John invited me to 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 take part in this conference, I rewrote a paper there, and th and there I there was some there was something there that I think I would only I only came to by virtue of my discussions with John Dunn and with the people around, and that is so that is something that's different. But I I must say all the rest of the things I've written have just been writ writing out things that I thought of, actually writing out things I thought of between sixty in sixty seven and sixty eight. I mean, obviously different because you'd have more information and there'd be more, but but not 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 really not really different. No, that's fair. Um, but in any case, in recent years, you and um, alongside Bernard Williams have been taken as sort of prominent advocates of a realist approach to political theory, and this has been seen as sort of a you know some sort of new turn in your writing as well as political theory in general. Um, could you perhaps explain how it emerged in your thinking? Could you were you responding to anyone specific or any debates? Yeah. Um, okay. Um, I very much regret that I ever used the word realism. Um, I was warned. I have a friend who's a very distinguished uh, philosopher. German philosopher Richard Rauch. Um, uh, he usually reads my stuff before I publish it. He told me this is a really bad idea. You're just storing up trouble for yourself. Realism is a term, is a loaded term. Everybody has their own idea of it. You're just going to make trouble for yourself. Don't use it. And he was absolutely right, and I was wrong. But there it is. But, 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 having said that. I think there are two complexes of issues. And what I call realism, I shouldn't have called it that, but what, whatever it is that I, let, let's assume that we can use the term realism, although I don't like it. What I call realism it arises in these two contexts. And, and so perhaps if I say something about the two contexts, that will give you some idea of what, um, what, uh, what I mean by it. The first is um, in uh, in the 60s and 70s, I uh, read a lot of Nietzsche. And in particular, I read about Nietzsche's um, analysis of Plato and Thucydides as alternative ways of thinking about politics and political life. So Nietzsche says, look, there are these two ways of thinking about political life. There's Plato and there's Nietzsche. Plato is roughly speaking an idealist. And Nietzsche says again and again, what's wrong with Plato? He is he has a very narrow understanding of what are the possible motivations for human action. He has a narrow psychology and that the psychology is narrow because he moralizes psychology. He can't separate morality and psychology appropriately. He sees all of moral motivate. He sees all of human motivation through this moral lens, and that impoverishes his understanding of uh, the human world. And Nietzsche then says too, and Plato inverts the relation between psychology 
and politics, or between his psychology and his politics, in that he, he, he suggests that I, Plato, have deep insight into the human soul. The human soul is divided into these separate parts. The parts are in conflict. There has to be a hierarchical structure among the parts. Reason has to rule over the passions. So he has a psychological theory in the Republic. And because that psychological, because human psychology works like this, you can draw the consequence that the society must be structured like this. So the polis has to be divided into separate parts, each of which is functionally distinct. Each part has to do its function and there has to be a hierarchy of them. And that the reason the polis has to have that structure is because human psychology is like this. Now Nietzsche says, to understand what Plato's doing, you have to reverse the order there. You have to invert it. It isn't that he discovers this psychology, psycho these psychological truths, and draws from that the consequences for the polis. It's the other way around. He starts with an idea of, a, of an authoritarian, I shouldn't use that term. He starts with this idea of a highly structured polis with a, a top-down organization of different parts, each, which, each of which is functionally, functionally specific. And he makes up a psychology to support that. So he presents it as if you go from the psychology to the politics, but, act, but you have to invert the order. You have to actually go from the politics. He, he has a value system. He starts with the value system and he starts with a, a conception of the politics that would instantiate that value system. And then he makes up a psychology and an, and an epistemology to, to, to support that. And so it isn't that his politics rest on psychology, it's rather that his psychology rests on his politics, if you want to put it that way. Now, if you put it that way, it immediately suggests to, to someone like me in the 60s, Marx comments, the early Marx comments about ideology. You remember one of the few things Marx says about ideology is it's like a camera obscura. Now, a camera obscura was an archaic kind of photographic device in which you saw an image inverted in the, 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 the camera obscura was a, was a, I don't actually know the details of it, but the camera obscura was a kind of, um, a kind of mirror. And you saw in the mirror, the world out there upside down. And Marx says, that's what ideology does. We politically think that we're living in a world of external necessity. There are these commodities out there. There are laws, iron laws of economic development, and we have to obey them. We have to conform to them. Their iron necessity, their ob objective, and they're determining us. But Marx says, what you have to see is to understand them, you have to reverse the order. It isn't that there's objective necessity out there and iron laws of, 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 the econo of economics and commodity which determine how we act. It's rather we who in acting in the way that we act in the world generate the illusion of necessity and objectivity for the economic world. 
the objectivity it has is an objectivity we give it. So again, there's an inversion. The, 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 as he says, bourgeois economics says, there are these economic laws and therefore we have to act this way, turn it around. There are ways, human ways of acting, we could act differently and that would generate different, different versions of apparent necessity and objectivity. So, um, so the, 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 so the, the, the platonic, the, so the Nietzschean and the, um, and the, um, the Nietzschean and the Marxian, Marxian analysis seem to me to have a lot of parallels. So Nietzsche says that's the platonic way of looking at it. Thucydides, on the other hand, has, he says, a very much broad, so that's the idealist way. Now, what's, who's the realist? The, the alternative to that is Thucydides. And Thucydides, he says, has actually a very much broader understanding of human motivation. He accepts lots of human motives. He doesn't moralize. Uh, he simply describes and describes how people work. And then he says, and now notice, saying that he, um, he describes how they really psychologically work, to say that is not to say that he, he denies that there are any ideas or any values or any, or, or that people are motivated or not, or, or that he denies that people are motivated or that he claims that people are all motivated by power or that they're all motivated by material interests. He doesn't claim that at all. He specifically, if, if you remember, he specifically says the Spartans are very religious and they couldn't go to war that day because they had a, a religious festival. So he's, he accepts there are motivations that people have that are not the motivation of greed or glory or material advantage. He, the Spartans are motivated by their religious things. So realism is, connect, is perfectly compatible for him with thinking that values you know, play a role and they play whatever role they play and ideas play a role. And if you want to explain what the Spartans did, the explanation is in terms of the religious festival. It's not in terms of trying to uh, pursue their interests, et cetera, et cetera. And furthermore, Nietzsche points out, um, uh, Thucydides also makes value judgments in his own voice about people. That's not incompatible with Thucydides' realism. Thucydides says um, Themistocles was a great leader because of his um, pronoia, his ability to predict the future. Now that's a value judgment. And Thucydides also says, Pericles uh, presented this policy to the Athenians. If they had followed that policy, they would have won the war. They just lost the war because they didn't do it. And he says about Nicias, another one of the generals, Nicias was a good man. He didn't deserve what happened to him. So that's a kind of realism which the realism is a rejection of the, the, so the realism there is a rejection of the platonic narrowing of motivation to more to moralizing forms of motivation, a rejection of that narrowing without necessarily um, denying that values or ideas play some motivational role or without denying the possibility of making one's own value judgments. So that's the first complex of places where this contrast comes in. Realism is something like more like Thucydides and less like Plato. And that was something that I 
thought about quite a lot in the 60s. Although they didn't publish anything about it because I was very slow to publish things. And so and the other context was a context um, was a, a, a more contemporary context, and that's the context of um, roles. Um, and you remember um, roles has uh, has a particular way of approaching political philosophy. Uh, if you read the theory of justice, um, it's well, we start with the idea of a well-ordered society. He doesn't exactly put it this way, but but we start with a well-ordered society. We know what a well-ordered society is, and we live in a well-ordered society. And now, given that we live in a well-ordered society, we can ask what politics we want to have. And in that context, we can start with our intuitions. We have these intuitions, and one of the intuitions is that um, justice is the basic social virtue, and justice is somehow connected with equality, and then we can have a veil of ignorance. We can we can just des des describe a mechanism by which we can specify what the principles of justice are, etc. And now, um, I uh, my reaction to that was that um, this is a model of a non-political political philosophy, of a non-political way to go about political philosophy. Because um, what sort of political philosophy is it that assumes from the beginning that you know what a well-ordered society is and assumes that we live in a well-ordered society? Politics is about deciding what a well-ordered society would look like if you want to use that term. And politics is about not living in a well-ordered society and then tink tinkering with the political institutions. It's about telling us how we get to a how, even if we knew what a well-ordered society was, how do we get to it? There's no discussion of any of that in roles. You just accept well-ordered society as this kind of bl blank, black box, and you start from there. But that just means that all of politics is excluded. All, all that you're left with is small taxation, I mean, small reforms in the taxation system. And, you know, that's important enough, but it's not actually politics. Um, so... So that was one of the things that, so there was roles and roles beginning with this notion of a well-ordered society and my re refusal to think that that was the right way to go about it. Um, and that was a, a motivation for calling whatever, whatever it was that rejected that was realist. Second, um, roles, he doesn't say this, he's too clever to say it, but really he assumes that uh, our in, we can start with our intuitions. That's how you start. You start with you. We have this intuition that justice is the thing. We'll start with that. Let's go with other other intuitions too. And now anyone who has read Marx or Dewey or Adorno wants to say these intuitions you start with don't come from nowhere. They're not just given somewhere. They're they're part of a process that's generated by society and social institutions. Societies operate in different ways. In operating in different ways, they secrete around themselves normative conceptions and ideal conceptions. Those conceptions are the conceptions that people in the societies are trained to have. Sometimes they can free themselves from them a little bit, but they still are trained in them, and they're trained in them so that the society can continue to operate. So you can't just take you just can't t t start 
and take uh, our, our moral intuitions and assume that they're healthy and good and a good starting point, uh, you have to see, you have to ask where they come from, who, how do they arise, how do they function, what is, you have to question them. And in addition, of course, if you come from the tradition I did with Adorno and, and other people, you think that um, these intuitions aren't necessarily healthy. They're not necessarily good starting points. They may be really corrupt. How do you know your intuitions aren't corrupt? Um, so, so, uh, so, um, so that was uh, 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 a big stone of, of, of controversy. And the third thing was the, the idea that this mechanism of the, um, of the um, veil of ignorance, that somehow by thinking of myself in abstraction from my position in the world, I, I, think, I think of myself as a kind of pure rational agent, um, not knowing that I'm a white uh, middle-class man, um, I abstract from that in the, in the veil of ignorance. Um, the, the idea is by, by, by abstracting from that, by thinking, by thinking, ignoring that, I free myself of my prejudices. But that's completely implausible. I, of course, I can think of myself as not having the position in society that I have, not being a retired white male professor. Um, but thinking that way doesn't make doesn't make me change all the other beliefs I have that I've acquired as a result of being that. To think that is to have magical thinking. I mean, that's to think that just just imagining yourself as a pure rational agent means you get rid of all of your prejudices. Why would anybody think that? So realism then for me was the rejection of those three things. It was the, it was the rejection of the idea that you start with um, your intuitions and you then move. And contrary to that, I wanted to say you start by some kind of an analysis of the actual society, how it works, how it works, how power is distributed, how the institutions work, and how that, how they form the context within which beliefs are beliefs and and intuitions and and values are generated. And you look you look at it that way. You start again. You you invert it. You don't start with the with the intuitions. You start with the mechanisms that generate the intuitions. And second, that um. And then second, that uh, you you don't think that by virtue of um, that by virtue of uh, thinking yourself out of your context, you actually take yourself out of your context. And so um, so realism for me just meant those two things. That is the the that is it was Thucydides as opposed to Plato. And it was whatever this is that I've described, as opposed to that, those things in roles that I was um, describing. Thanks so much. Um, that has been very helpful. And yeah, these are all the questions I have for you um, today. And thanks so much. Okay. I really enjoyed reading your book and I've really enjoyed your, you know, all your previous essays. And yeah, thanks so much for your time. It's very kind of you, um, Ming. Thank you for inviting me and thank, thank you. you for being so patient and listening to me um, go on and on. It's been a it's been a it's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's been absolutely so, such a pleasure for me. Yep. Thank you very much then.
，拜拜。